Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Raywith's Harrogate Literature Festival, a celebration of great writing and leading thinkers sponsored by Raywith's solicitors. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining journey through the kings and queens of England with Peter Snow and Anne Macmillan. Terrific. My goodness me. Um, this is very exciting. Good old, good old Harrogate. We came here about three years ago. It was a wonderful time. Valley Gardens, Valley Gardens, Valley Gardens. <laughs> and Reworth, the wonderful solicitors, have signed up for another five years. And that's... Uh, <laughs> <you're>... <laughs> and they're all sitting watching. It's great fun. Um, right, well, uh, this extraordinary time to be to have written this book. <laughs> you shouldn't be laughing. I'm sorry, you can, no, you can, you can laugh about the kings and queens, but not about Boris. Um, <laughs> um, but the, um, I mean, what a time to have written a book which we didn't know anything like the tragic death of the queen would happen. We finished it in June, it went off the printers, and we got booked back about uh, three weeks ago, and then the queen tragically died. And they're going to do, I'm glad to see a reprint, but the, the book is really not about Charles and the Queen so much as about the whole story behind them, the royal family, the extraordinary story behind them, and the incredible story of a hereditary monarchy. And incidentally, just a sort of ridiculous point to make now, but the hereditary monarchy has had a much more serene handover in the last few weeks than the government. <laughs> the government looks like having it for sure. Um, writing a book with your husband is quite challenging, as you can imagine, ladies. And uh, we have written a couple of books together before, and we found it a bit stressful from time to time. But this time, believe it or not, thanks to COVID, we were quite harmonious because we were locked in our house with nobody around and nobody to talk to, so we had to get on. And we had our separate offices. I must say that was quite a, quite a good thing to do. And uh, it meant that we could really immerse ourselves in this subject. A thousand years of British kings and queens, right back to Alfred the Great, right up to Charles III. And we really enjoyed the research. So every day we'd get up during COVID and we'd have a schedule and we'd start reading the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, which are all online. We, you know, we read all sorts of things, at, you know, Queen Victoria's diaries. Queen Victoria wrote millions of words during her lifetime. Every night before she went to bed, she'd write 2,000 words in her diary at least. She also wrote endless letters to her various children, usually scolding them for things that she perceived were not, they weren't doing properly. Um, but it was, it was wonderful. And um, it, we, we also, as well as finding out all sorts of fascinating historical facts, we found some really fun stuff. For example, according to a chronicler at the time of William the Conqueror, and when, uh, when, he, when he was getting old, he was very fat, apparently, and the King of France joked that he looked like a woman who'd just had a baby. And we also found out, I don't know if any of you know this, but the Queen's father, George VI, when he was still a prince, played tennis in the men's doubles at Wimbledon. He was in the uh, men's doubles. He lost in the first round. He was a left-hander, and people started shouting at him because they were playing quite badly. Use your right. Use your right. <laughs> but uh, that, we, I mean, we just found lots of interesting, fun stuff as well as the really serious stuff. Anyway, what we thought we'd do is just show you a few pictures and try and give you an impression of the sort of themes that we've been looking at in writing. But the we've done written the stories. The, the, the story of the royal family is a great story, but... Also, we've dug out certain themes we push through, which we'll, we, which we'll sort of give you a, a, a taste of in a moment, before we ask you if you've got any questions to ask us. But let's bang off with the hereditary monarchy. Um, the random nature of who succeeds who in Britain's hereditary monarchy is an established fact. But what we found fascinating is how often a really good king or queen is followed by an absolute loser. <laughs> Take Richard the Lionheart, for example great warrior king who is succeeded by his brother John, a hopeless ruler. John's grandson, Edward I, turned out to be an excellent monarch. In fact, the first three Edwards provide a revealing contrast showing how good kings can be succeeded by bad and how the hereditary monarchy can come unstuck. Edward I reformed common law and extended English rule over the Welsh. But for the purposes of this lecture, 
I want to focus on this king's son, Edward II, and his son, Edward III. Edward II was one of the worst monarchs in British history. He was irresponsible, lazy, stubborn, and he drank too much. His calamitous 20-year reign ended with him becoming the first English king to be thrown out of office. His major failing was that he allowed himself to become infatuated with ambitious, unscrupulous men who took advantage of his weak nature. Men like Piers Gaveston, who had a huge influence over the king and was hated by the leading barons of the day. He urged Edward to do as he liked and ignore restrictions that the barons placed on him. Uh, restrictions such as forbidding the king to go to war without parliament's approval and making him get rid of what the nobles called his evil counsellors. Gaveston was banished from England, but came back. The barons quickly had him murdered. Edward then fell under the power of Hugh Despenser. Like Piers Gaveston before him, he became Edward's chamberlain, controlling all access to the king. And he encouraged Edward to fight nobles who opposed him. Edward's wife, Isabella, sister of the King of France, hated Despenser, and when her husband sent her to Paris to sort out a quarrel with the French king, she decided to stay there. She issued a proclamation saying, someone has come between my husband and myself, meaning Despenser, I will not return until this intruder is removed, which reminded us of Princess Diana telling Martin Bashir that there were three people in the marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Isabella did return to England, but at the head of a victorious army. The king and dispenser were captured. The detested dispenser was tied to the top of a 50-foot ladder so all could see him being disemboweled, hung, and quartered. The question now was, what to do with Edward? Never before had an English king been deposed. Parliament, which um, was in its very early stages at this point, decided the king must abdicate and he was forced to hand over his crown to his 14-year-old son, Edward III. The deposed king died a few months later, and most chroniclers claim that he was murdered, either by being smothered or by having a red-hot poker shoved up his backside. <laughs> Edward III turned out to be everything that his father was not, and the more we learned about him, the more we decided he is one of England's outstanding kings. He surrounded himself with wise advisors, he listened to them, and he governed by consent. His ability to reach out to aristocrats and commoners alike led, the, led to the longest period of domestic peace in medieval England, but there was plenty of fighting abroad. Through his mother Isabella, Edward III was the closest male heir to the throne of France, and he was furious when a French cousin, Philippe, became king. Undeterred? Edward declared himself King of France, which led to the Hundred Years' War. By the way, British monarchs used the title King or Queen of France until 1801. Edward is an exceptionally brave and clever warrior. His tactics at battles like Crecy, where he and his army defeated a much larger French force, are still studied in military schools. Another famous victory over a larger French army took place in Poitiers, King Edward's son and heir, the Black Prince, won that one, and he took some very important and rich prisoners. He captured the French king, who you see here handing over his sword to the English prince, along with many nobles whose families had to pay huge ransoms to set them free. With money pouring in from ransom payments and war bounty, the king's court flourished. Here's Edward founding the Order of the Garter in Windsor Castle, a huge statue of St. George slaying the dragon in the middle. Edward was a great one for pomp and ceremony, as well as being an outstanding fighter and administrator. Just one moment. The English language also flourished under Edward's reign. Until now, French had been the official language in Parliament and in the courts of law, but it was replaced with English at this time. This was the time of Chaucer, who worked as a royal official the king encouraged him to write in English. The Black Prince, named for the black armor he wore, we think, was a very promising heir to the throne, but he died before his father. So exceptional King Edward was succeeded by the Black Prince's 10-year-old son, Richard II. True to form for the Plantagenet dynasty, he proved to be a hopeless king and ended up being deposed 
just like his great-grandfather, Edward II. We found many other examples of good monarchs followed by bad. Henry V, hero of Agincourt, Agincourt, we say Agincourt in Canada, um, produced the weak and incompetent Henry VI. There were also kings who hated their heirs. George I, II, and III all despised theirs. In our research, we found a wonderful comment about the Hanoverians. Like pigs, they trample their young. And I won't even get into how the late queen's grandfather, King George V, loathed his son, Edward VIII. Not enough time. Um, What everybody always asks us who your favorite king and queen and all sorts of stuff is. In fact, Dan, our son, who writes the foreword, by the way, to our book, um, Dan did a thing at uh, the Leicester Square Theatre yep. three nights ago, and they, they, they sort of had votes, and God knows what, and they came up with Elizabeth the first, mm-hmm. number one, followed by Alfred, who we started with, and we think he's <laughs> rather a good chap too. Anyway, what I thought I'd do is just take you through, um, the, not, not our favourites, but the ones who really made a mark on British history, really made a solid mark on British history. Um, and one begins with, if one can, if it's working, no it's not, wait a minute, hang on. Maybe it's like that. No? Well, I can do it. No, it's not. I'm going to have to ask you to press the button. Okay, I can do that. Okay. Let's just see what happens. There you go. No. Yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yes, this one. My, my great, great chap. Um, Good old Alfred. I mean, we begin the book with Alfred. Um, and he didn't just burn the cakes. I mean, he's much bigger than that. <laughs> he was the man, really, who, who made this Anglo-Saxon country descended from like, the old girl Saxons who came over in the 5th century. He made it into England and he, he called the language, which had been Latin and French and goodness says what, uh, he called it the English language. So he was the, the starter of more than that. I mean, he also, he also gave us a great deal of the administrative system that survives to this day. And his uh, oh, biographer, a wonderful chap called Bishop Asser, is now working for some reason, <laughs> a wonderful chap called Bishop Asser, um, uh, it's, uh, this is Alfred, this is a sort of portrait of Alfred on his, on his uh, silver penny. And uh, look at his hairstyle, it's marvellous. Um, Bishop Asser said, Alfred had an insatiable desire for knowledge. Uh, he translated books, he translated the extraordinary Boethius's Constellations of Philosophy and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, he was a very bright chap, didn't really learn to read until he grew up. But anyway, never mind all that, he, he, was, he, gave, us, he gave us a good pattern for education, for rule of law, and also he invented the boroughs. He invented a lot of the basic government we have at the moment, but he also invented the British boroughs. And that's lasted right the way through to this day. And of course, also, good old Alfred, managed to defeat the Danes. So many kings before him, Egbert and all that gang, had, had tried to get rid of the Danes, the awful Danes, sorry, excuse me. Um, <laughs> no, no, in those days, now they're wonderful. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Danes and the Norsemen and so on had come across raiding the country, trying to grab stuff and so on, and Alfred defeated them. And he persuaded the heathen king of the Danes, a chap called Guthrum, to become a Christian. It was rather good news. And good old Guthrum knelt before a font, and Alfred, the chap in the purple thing on the right there, became his godfather. It was all rather friendly, so we made friends with the Danes, uh, as we have do now. Uh, and it was quite successful for a while, until later on the Danes got a bit nasty again. But uh, that was rather successful. Um, the next history-making the man that made a mark on British history, we reckon, apart from Alfred. Uh, later on, his, his grandson was a chap called Athelstan. I'm sure, again, I'm, I, I know a lot of you know this already, but it's, it's fun to go through it. Athelstan, 30, 40 years after Alfred died, his grandson, a wonderful bloke, and he was the man who uh, brought Northumbria into the Kingdom of Wessex, a kingdom of, of England, if you like, by that time, and he also beat the Scots, and he was able to claim, this is his penny here, and he was able to claim that he was king of all Britain, Rex Toti Britanniae. So he was hell of a chap, Athelstan, uh, a man often neglected by history, but he was as, in many ways as important as Alfred, and he produced more of a kingdom even than Alfred had. Uh, and then, of course, the whole of this very prosperous and successful Anglo-Saxon kingdom was knocked apart by the blitzkrieg of William the Conqueror in 1066. And... Uh, the interesting thing about that, though, is that all the Normans, of course, were the movers and shakers. They were the ones who ran the country under William. But 
the system, the administrative system, the sheriffs, the sharifs, the people who collected the taxes, the local borough governors, all that lot, they, were, they tended to stay on as Anglo-Saxons, with, with the Normans sort of being, running it, running the show. And of course, uh, William gave us the, the castles lining our skyline, and he gave us, of course, a large number of words for the English language, from his language. Um, so that was the Normans, and you can't really miss out William the Conqueror as being one of the, the kings who made a huge mark on English history. Now, we, I rather like this chap, we both do. Henry II, again, not often celebrated because of the way he treated Thomas Beckett, or was supposed to have treated Thomas Beckett, uh, but he was a tremendous chap. He really changed British history with a combination of military prowess and love. He met in Paris, uh, quite early on in his life, he was only a late teenager, he met this wonderful woman, Elder of Aquitaine. She really is a, a sensation. She was the wife of Louis VII of France, the King of France. And maddeningly for the King of France, Eleanor couldn't produce a son. And of course, you always wanted sons in those days. It was rather important to have sons. And uh, so the, the, the marriage was annulled. And immediately that uh, this, uh, this marriage was annulled, Eleanor ran off and joined Henry, and they got married. And that was the most successful marriage. One main reason for that was that she brought with her Aquitaine. <laughs> and uh, that's really... That's really everything up to there. Amazing. So Henry, lucky old chap, had an empire stretching from the... It lasted a long, very short time indeed. An empire lasting from, from Scottish border right down to the Pyrenees. Sadly, although this was a very successful marriage for that reason, and also because they loved each other very much, it went wrong because Henry, stupid man, went and got excited by a mistress, Rosamond Clifford. And Eleanor, understandably, got a bit angry about that. <laughs> and she teamed up with Henry's sons, who decided that they would rebel against their father, who was trying, to, they thought, to do too much ruling himself and leaving them too little power when he was getting older. And the result of it all was that Henry really found himself isolated within his family and by his sons, and on his deathbed, he said, rather sadly, a man who'd been a very successful king, and the kingdom had been very successful under him. Uh, he said, he was said to have said, shame, shame on a conquered king. Completely humiliated man. So Henry II, anyway, quite a, quite, a, quite a chap with a big mark on history. Well, you can't miss out this guy, uh, not Henry VIII, but his dad, Henry VII, who, of course, united the two roses, Lancaster and York, ended the Wars of the Roses, which had been a dreadful civil war, dreadful conflict. Uh, and he uh, ran the country very well. He had good advisers. And uh, he, of course, ran, began the Tudor dynasty. And he also gave us that stunning place, which I'm sure you've all been to, the Henry VII's Chapel in um, at Westminster Abbey. I mean, it is just the absolute glory of perfect final final moment of Gothic architecture, perpendicular architecture. It is just extraordinary. And that's all the contribution of Henry VII to British art. Well, one can't lose this guy from one's um, history book, <laughs> um, who um, really, you've got to hand it to him, he did make a big difference. Not just because he married lots of women, but because he threw out the Catholic Church. I mean, the, the, the church was all the way through, Henry II had tried to defeat it without success. Uh, the church was hugely wealthy in land, in riches, in people, in sort of thought and everything. And Henry finally said, this has got to stop. Of course, he had a good reason, because he didn't like the Pope very much, because the Pope wouldn't cancel Catherine of Aragon for him. So there's all sorts of, all sorts of, as you know, reasons for it. But the church, he dissolved the monasteries. A huge moment in British history. And he also decided the Navy was pretty important. And he built a lot of ships. And so the next person who, of course, makes a huge difference, Mark on British history, Elizabeth I, had a pretty good Navy. And my goodness, we all know what that did for her. Uh, the good old Armada, 1588. And she was also sensibly fairly moderate about the relationship between the Catholic and the Anglican Church. And... So it, it, it sort of quietened down a bit during her reign. Um, one has to move on then to really, in terms of making their mark on British history, the people who reigned the longest, George, Victoria, and good old Elizabeth II, 
I think what they did, more than anything else, was they, rather than actually innovate themselves, change history themselves, they provided a sort of mantle of continuity and stability under which the country could change. And it's, it's that, I think that's the important thing about the monarchy. Never mind the hereditary bit, which has been awkward sometimes, a bit bizarre and absurd, but the fact that these guys were there providing this mantle of continuity meant that the, country, the political turmoil, as we all know, that's the point of the constitutional monarchy, that the political turmoil that goes on underneath it can go on for what it likes, for all the, all the stuff we're seeing at the moment goes on, while Charles III is there for us. So that's quite important. Right, next we're going to do unexpected monarchs. Um, and another thing that struck us when we were writing this book was how many of our monarchs were not destined to become kings or queens. They were younger brothers, or God forbid, sisters. And uh, the crown was handed down to the eldest son until the law was changed just a few years ago. If Prince William's firstborn had been a girl, she would have become queen one day. An historic first, and it certainly took a long time to get there. Believe it or not, Henry VIII was not born to be king. He had an older brother called Arthur. At the age of three, Arthur was betrothed to Catherine, daughter of Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand of Aragon. They were married in St. Paul's Cathedral, each just 15 years old, and not long after the wedding, they both fell ill from some undiagnosed disease, possibly tuberculosis, maybe the plague, influenza, no one's sure. Catherine recovered, but Arthur died just five months after his wedding. So his rambunctious 10-year-old younger brother, Henry, became heir to the throne. Henry's father, Henry VII, got the Pope to grant a special dispensation so that young Henry could wed Catherine of Aragon. They married when Henry, a very handsome young man, became king. She was 23, five years his senior, and the first of his six wives. He was later famously to use the fact that she had been married to his brother as a reason for annulling their union. Two other monarchs not expected to inherit the throne were Mary and her sister Anne, and not just because they were women. They were daughters of James, the younger brother of Charles II. It was assumed that uh, Charles and his wife would have heirs, or failing that, that their father James would have a son. So James's Protestant daughters seemed highly unlikely to succeed. They were quite isolated as children. Their mother died when they were young. They were estranged from their father who, re who remarried and converted to Catholicism. Their education was pretty basic, um, typical of aristocratic females of the time. They were taught skills like sewing and singing instead of subjects that could be useful for a reigning monarch. To make a long story short, Charles II died childless. His brother James took over as king. Mary II, inherited the throne when her Dutch Protestant husband, William of Orange, invaded England and threw out her Catholic father. William and Mary didn't have any children, so Anne was crowned queen, and we decided that she was a surprisingly good one too. No one expected this chap to become king. William was the third son of King George III, and when he was young, he was so stupid and badly behaved that his family called him Silly Billy. Because he didn't expect to inherit the throne, he made his career in the Navy, which gave rise to another nickname, Sailor Bill. And he had 10 illegitimate children with an actress, Dorothea Jordan. It was the death of Princess Charlotte which brought William closer to the throne. She was the only child of his brother, who became George IV, and she died while giving birth to a stillborn son. William had dropped Mrs. Jordan by this time, and he quickly married a German princess, both his older brothers died childless, so Silly Billy became George IV's surprise heir. He was 64 when he ascended the throne, and he enjoyed every minute of it. One observer said the expression, happy as a king, could have been invented for him. People loved him for being down to earth. He once walked up a street near St. James's Palace, hugging passers-by. He did not have any legitimate children, so he was succeeded by his dead younger brother's daughter, none other than Queen Victoria, who reigned for more than 60 years. Here's another man, George V, who looks as if he was born to be king, but wasn't. George had an older brother, Albert Victor, known as Eddie. But whereas George was conscientious and dutiful, Eddie was empty-headed and irresponsible. When rumors spread about Eddie having affairs with married women, visiting brothels, and being treated for gonorrhea, his grandmother, Queen Victoria, insisted that he get married. 
She chose her German cousin's daughter, Mary of Teck, to be his bride. But within weeks of their engagement, Eddie died of influenza. Just as Henry VIII had married his brother's widow, George married his brother's fiancée. King George and Queen Mary had a very happy marriage, and he was a much better king than Eddie ever would have been. A lucky escape for the monarchy. Last but not least of our unexpected rulers is George VI. He too had an older brother who turned out to be a disaster. The Prince of Wales, who became Edward VIII, made it clear from an early age that he hated the thought of becoming king. When he was in his 20s, he toured the world, and his good looks and his charming manners made him a huge hit with the public. But behind his Prince Charming image was a young man who could not stand the job. Here's what he wrote to his married mistress, Frida Dudley Ward, well before becoming king. I should shoot or drown myself to escape from this life which has become so, so foul and sad and depressing and miserable for me. And escape he did by falling in love with a twice-divorced American, Wallace Simpson. When it became clear that it'd be impossible to marry her and remain king, he abdicated. In his infamous abdication speech, which his good friend Winston Churchill helped him to write, he said, I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. His younger brother, George, was shocked and dismayed. He was convinced that the abdication was a disaster for the monarchy, but he was also worried that he was not up to the job. He said, I feel like the proverbial sheep being led to slaughter, but he promised that he'd do everything possible to make amends for what has happened. George VI certainly did more than make amends. He was a very good king, and he left his daughter Elizabeth one of the most secure thrones in British history. It was another lucky escape for the British monarchy that Edward VIII only reigned for 11 months. We loved uh, a, a, a quote by Noel Coward that every village, green, should have a statue to Mrs. Simpson because she saved Britain from Edward VIII. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, no, I mean, the, the whole point of hereditary monarchy is that to provide succession, to provide a nice smooth running, and to be fair, in the last 50 years or so, it has been pretty smooth, I have more than that, goodness knows, I mean, Elizabeth II reigned for 70 years. So, I mean, 90, 100 years, it's been a pretty successful and serene movement from one monarch to another. And so, it, so it, that's the whole, the whole hope with the military monarchy, we like that. Of course, it hasn't always been like that, it may not always be like that. Um, you've only got to go back to William the Conqueror's sons, good old Robert and uh, William Rufus, to see how it all began with dreadful, savage violence between them. Uh, Robert, this chap here on the left, can you all see him? Robert was the um, Duke of Normandy who was the eldest son of uh, William I. Uh, he thought, what the heck is this man Rufus doing running England? Because that's where, you know, my dad was the, the king and all this stuff, and so I should be king of England too. And he landed in England, battles. Robert never left William alone. And poor old Rufus, who eventually, I'm sure you know, was shot in the back by an arrow, <laughs> was, uh, was, uh, was constantly having to fend off this wretched man uh, who wouldn't let him stay there. I mean, William had effectively given Rufus uh, England, but uh, Robert wasn't going to let him. So, so that was not a successful bit of succession. Um, Richard the Lionheart, wonderful chap, went off the Holy Land campaign, the crusade, came back. And even while he was crusading, and certainly when he came back, his extremely scruffy younger brother, John, was trying to rebel against him, lead the barons against uh, Richard, uh, and push him off the throne. Richard was the, was the senior, he was the eldest son, he was the senior to John. He had every right to be king, he was king, and he found John in awful pain. He was very generous to John, he didn't uh, take any action against him, and fortunately for John, of course, good old Richard was shot by a French crossbowman in the siege in France, uh, and so John did succeed, became king really quite young, and he became the king. Well, he, of course, as we all know, was no great chap. Richard II, Anne's already mentioned what a hopeless chap he was. I, I don't think he's all that bad, but we, we had a, <laughs> a bit of fun there. But uh, King Richard II, I, I'm rather fond of him. Um, he, of course, was chucked out by, uh, because he was regarded as pretty hopeless. Also, he was pretty unkind to the family, uh, to Henry's father, the uh, John of Gaunt. And um, Henry chucked out Richard II, as you know. Um, then Henry VI, 
fought these dreadful Wars of the Roses with, uh, with uh, Duke of York, Edward of Edward, who became Edward the Fourth Duke of York. At the end of that, so Edward chucked out uh, this chap. I mean, so the, the, this wonderful hereditary succession was not actually a dream operation during the medieval period. Richard III, as we all know, uh, lost the uh, Battle of uh, Bosworth to Henry VII, uh, and uh, that was the end of that was the end of, um, of, of Richard and the beginning of the Tudor period. Um, so it's not surprising, really, that uh, good old Henry VIII was so obsessed with the problem of succession. And Henry wanted to produce a son. Now, it was essential to have a son, needless to say. Well, not actually essential, but pretty useful to have a son until very recently when they changed the law. And Henry wanted to produce a son. He finally did it with the third wife, as you all know. Um, Edward VI became, uh, became the king. And he, Henry wanted to make sure that, that Edward would be secure on the throne. So he made sure that Princess Mary and Princess Elizabeth, his two daughters, who were senior to Edward, uh, were illegitimate. He said, sorry, they're not my daughters. They're <laughs> not, strictly speaking, illegitimate daughters. And so they were cancelled by him. But then before he died, Henry panicked about Edward VI, his son, who he produced later on after those two, and said... Uh, I think actually I'll make you legitimate again, just so in case something goes wrong with Edward. So he then changed them, and they became, uh, they became um, uh, legitimate, and they did, could succeed Edward VI. Well, Edward himself was determined not to let either of them succeed, in case they were, because he was absolutely passionately in favour of continuing the Anglican Church of England cause, and not allowing any Catholics anywhere near the throne. And so Edward said, no, no, I'm not going to have... Mary and Elizabeth succeed me. I'm going to have a, a well-known, well, fairly well-known Protestant relation, a cousin of his, Lady Jane Grey, as my successor. Poor old Lady Jane Grey, we all know happened to her. She was only king, queen for nine days. She ended up beheaded. Mary outgunned her, Princess Mary outgunned her, and became Queen Mary, as we know. Um, well, Mary and Philip of Spain, she married, very unpopular marriage, Mary and Philip of Spain tried to have children to succeed them, but they failed. There were several false pregnancies by Mary, and so tragically for her, uh, she didn't have any children. And the same problem was with Elizabeth, of course. Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, her, her, her advisors were, again, absolutely obsessed, like Henry VIII, with the fact that there was no obvious heir to the throne. And so she was, she was, um, she was for, throughout her life, throughout her reign, the problem was who would succeed her. And the likeliest one was uh, Mary Queen of Scots, a cousin of hers, who unfortunately was a Catholic. Although Elizabeth was fairly gentle about this fight between Catholics and Protestants, she was determined that this woman would not succeed her. And so, of course, she chopped her head off. And uh, ironically... Mary's, Mary, Queen of Scots's son, James I, then on the advice of Elizabeth's uh, advisors later on, the Cecils, just before Elizabeth died, they said, I think James probably is the man, James VI of Scotland, as he was, to succeed you. And so James succeeded. Uh, and a uh, hundred years later, another Stuart, the rascally Stuarts, they were a terrible lot, James II produced a Catholic, he was a Catholic, and he became king. By that time, it quietened down a little bit, but it was still a huge issue, Catholics versus Protestants. Catholics, on the whole, more and more unpopular. James II was a Catholic, his son was a Catholic, and the British elite rose up and said, this man simply cannot be allowed to go on, certainly we can't have his son reigning, let's get rid of him. And so they got hold of William of Orange, William from Holland, they said, come on over and, um, you know, take over. We'll make sure you do. And, of course, he did, as we all know. Anne, his uh, successor, William's third successor, um, she didn't have any children. They all died before she was queen. Tragic. I mean, how many were there? 13, 15? 17 pregnancies. 17. 17, 17 pregnancies. 17 yes. pregnancies. And... Um, so the Act of Settlement was passed by Parliament, which by then was very, very important, as we'll come to later. Uh, the Act of Settlement came, and they said, okay, she must be succeeded by a Protestant. And they looked around <laughs> for a Protestant. And we all know, don't we, who he came, she came up with. Um, good old George I of Hanover. He was a great-grandson of James I, so he wasn't absurd. But he was a, a German. And the question now becomes not so much the... the, the succession itself, which went on reasonably smoothly from then on right until today, but the suitability of that person to succeed as a monarch. 
George himself didn't speak a word of English. So that wasn't terribly effective. And uh, of course, three Georges later, we had this ridiculous man, Prinny, uh, the Prince of Wales who became George IV, who was a complete debauchee. And he, had, he was supposed to have had eight courses each meal. And um, he had about 100... Uh, dishes, eight, lots of different dishes. Lots of different yeah. dishes. I mean, he was ludicrous. Um, and the, he was the, the butt of every cartoonist in the business. I mean, so he, I mean, unsuitable, obviously, yes. I mean, he was a disgraceful king. And people were quite glad to get rid of him. Um, again, the suitability, although they succeeded quite naturally, as I've said already, the whole thing became a, a fairly smooth succession, the suitability of some of these people was clearly not on. I mean, we've already heard from Anne how he didn't want to be king, how he loathed being king, he preferred being with Wallace than, than being king, and so on. Um, and his brother, uh, George VI, as he became, the Duke of York, as he was under Edward VIII, George VI had a stutter, he was very shy, very introverted character, but nevertheless, of course, we all know, turned out to be an extremely successful and effective king. He was, he was an absolute champion of the British people during the Second World War. And now we have Charles. Um, you know, many people wonder about old Charles, young Charles, whatever he is, um, I'm younger than us, younger than me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, we both think that he started off very well. He has a huge experience. Uh, yes, there have been questions about the way he accepted money in big bags from Arabs, um, but one does. Um, <laughs> and, um, Fortnum's, uh, and Fort Fortnum's and Masons, actually. Fortnum and Masons. Yeah. Yeah, there was Fortnum and Mason bag, and it wasn't Fortnum and Mason who grew No, no, money. it was the bag. The bag, yeah. <laughs> Did I say? Okay. Anyway. Um, but I mean, yes, yes, yes. I mean, all sorts of questions about his opinions. On the other hand, he's agreed to keep his opinions to himself. Uh, he's, he's accepted, he accepted Liz Truss's demand that he don't go to COP28, which the, the climate change conference coming up. I wonder if that'll be changed, by the way, by the new Prime Minister. Anyway, never mind all that. Um, so we think Charles is a good thing, and, and he is the new monarch, and he does provide that wonderful mantle of continuity and stability under which the politicians can go on rowing as long as they like, but he's there for us. <clears throat> Another pretty obvious theme. Oh. Sorry, I'll go back. Thank you. My fault. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, another pretty obvious theme emerged as we wrote our book. Monarchs are incredi incredibly privileged, but they can't escape the problems that we all encounter. Illness, tragedy, personality defects, unhappy marriages, ungrateful children. Just like us, they face ups and downs in life, and they have their faults. William the Conqueror, invader of England, was not as brave as he seemed. At his coronation in 1066, there was a near riot in Westminster Abbey, and a chronicler wrote that the king trembled violently. Towards the end of his life, as I've already mentioned, he was unhealthily overweight, and when he died, his body was too big for the coffin. It was stuffed in anyway, causing his intestines to explode, and apparently the smell was appalling. Henry I, son of William the Conqueror, was a notorious womanizer. He holds the record for royal illegitimate children, 22. He had two legitimate children, and when his heir, Edward, was drowned at sea, Henry was devastated. You can see the king in this contemporary drawing sitting above the sinking white ship which Edward was on. He was so heartbroken, it was said that he never smiled again. Edward named Matilda, his only other legitimate child, as his heir, but she was not able to stake her claim because she was busy having a baby when her father died. So her double-dealing cousin Stephen snatched the throne, leading to a very unpleasant civil war when Matilda fought unsuccessfully to claim her crown. Queen Anne's health was ruined by multiple pregnancies, 17 in all. Only five of her babies were born alive, and they all died by the age of 11, three of them from smallpox. She also suffered from rheumatism and gout and could hardly walk when she became queen at the age of 37. She had to be carried to her coronation in a sedan chair. She drank too much and was nicknamed Brandy Nan. And her relationship with Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough, is still the subject of vicious gossip. Anne's husband, Prince George of Denmark, was so boring that her uncle, Charles II, remarked, I have tried him drunk, and I've tried him sober, and there's nothing to him. 
George III went famously mad, not once, but four times. He tried to strangle his son and heir on the first occasion. Another time, he was so violent towards his devoted wife, Queen Charlotte, that she took to locking herself in her bedchamber at night. It was originally thought that George suffered from a hereditary blood disorder, porphyria, which makes urine turn blue, but more recently, it's believed he was bipolar. He spent the last 10 years of his reign in seclusion, wandering around Windsor Castle in a tattered purple dressing gown. He held long conversations with dead friends and banged on the keys of a harpsichord saying, this was a favorite piece of the king when he was alive. Queen Victoria was so heartbroken by the early death of her beloved husband, Prince Albert, that she contemplated suicide. She slept clutching his nightshirt, clinging on to a plaster cast of his hand, which lay on her pillow. For a time, her doctors feared that she had inherited the madness of her grandfather, George III. Edward VIII was a racist. When he was Prince of Wales, he wrote a letter from Australia claiming that aboriginals were the most revolting form of living creatures I've ever seen. While on a state visit to India, he attended a ball and refused to dance with the Maharaja's wife. He was overheard saying, I will not dance with a black woman. He was also a fan of Hitler. After he abdicated, he took his wife Wallace to visit the Nazi leader just before the Second World War. Even our late beloved queen, who seldom put a foot wrong in public, had, like the rest of us, family problems with divorces, an errant son, and a grandson who flew the family firm. In spite of their exalted position, our monarchs are all too human. Well, another theme we came up with, the last one, I promise you, everyone's Christmas. <laughs> um, another theme we obviously came up with was just how far the power of British monarchs, English and then British monarchs, has declined from way back. When, of course, in the old days, they had unbridled power. They were dictators. They were, they were, they were, they were generalissimos. Um, William I, just blitzkrieg, ran the country, installed his own people everywhere, and ran the whole system. Um, it was really not until... Oh, and I think I've got another problem with this. Can you press the button? Yeah. Oh, strange. There yes. you go. Okay. Good old King John. Um, he... I mean, he... he behaved so badly. I mean, he failed in France to do any successful military action. He uh, was greedy. He grabbed all the money he could. He was arrogant. He was, he was hopeless at choosing uh, advisors. And the barons uh, in 1200, 1215, they simply marched on London and said, this has got to change. And so he found himself having to sign a great charter of Runnymede, again, the extraordinary Magna Carta, in which the king was made to recognize that he was not above everybody else. There was, this is the first real moment of limiting the power of the king. Very important moment. Some people call it the birth of democracy, probably rather exaggeration, but it was a very important moment. And John, within moments of signing the damn thing, he said goodbye to the barons, and then he promptly tore it up. And fortunately, he drowned, and he didn't drown, sorry, he nearly drowned, he drowned the crown jewels, but he, he died very soon after he'd signed Magna Carta and torn it up. Um, he'd per he persuaded Pope Innocent III, his mate, Innocent III, to say this charter is null and void of all validity, whatever, which is quite useful. But fortunately, Innocent III became irrelevant after a while because John died and was succeeded by his son, Henry III. Now, Henry was a tiny little chap, under 10 years old when he succeeded, and he didn't fuss too much about Magna Carta. Magna Carta was reintroduced in 1225 when uh, Henry was, was nothing, he was just a few years old. And uh, uh, we had then the beginnings of something serious in the way of Parliament. The king's power was already limited by Magna Carta, which Henry had recognized. Uh, and from now on, Parley, French Parley, they decided that they would, the barons would speak to each other and speak to the king. And the barons began to rule the first vital element of Parliament's power, which was the, the, ability to, the ability to rule the amount of money the king could spend. That was a huge first. And that began, really, in 1225-ish, uh, under Henry III. But Henry III was a hopeless chap, rather like one or two of the others we've talked about. And Henry very soon began to get silly. And uh, about 20 years, when he was about 30, 40 years old, he decided that his, son, his younger son, Edmund Crouchback, would make a wonderful king of Sicily. And so he, he wrote to the Pope, and the Pope said, well, all right, it cost you a few bob. 
um, how much you got. So Henry said, I'll just check with Parliament. He went to Parliament and he said, look, chaps, um, I'd like to um, make my son the King of Sicily. Uh, if you just pop up a few thousand, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or whatever they are now, pounds. And Parliament said no. Um, <laughs> and, and then he said, well, look, I tell you what. So he went back to Edmund and he said, look, dress up as an Italian and spout a few Italian words and we go back to Parliament. He did that, he went into Parliament, the guy started saying spaghetti or it was, and <laughs> Parliament sort of laughed and just kicked him out. So here was Parliament exerting its power early on in British history, quite important. In the end, poor old Henry uh, faced a gang of barons who came along under Simon de Montfort and said, look, uh, these, this has got to stop. Um, you've got to sign this document, your power is limited. Henry said no. There was effectively a year of civil war. Uh, Henry lost the first battle of Lewis. And then a year later, his son, a wonderful chap, Edward I, as we all know, Anne's talked about him already, a very impressive king, defeated Simon. Simon was hung, drawn, and quartered, and back was the king, back on the throne. But fortunately, it was Edward I. And under Edward I and III, again, you get this roller coaster of sons, the fathers producing ridiculous sons like Edward II in the middle here. But Edward III, who took over from Edward II, was also a fine king, as Anne has said. And they had a parliament in which you had, for the first time, lords and commons, two houses of parliament. The lords, mostly the barons, and the commons, genuinely people lower down the scale. And you had the beginning here of a serious parliamentary government. Again, the kings, of course, were still massively powerful. Uh, Edward III, Parliament, Parliament showed their power, to, even to Edward III, who was a very successful king. They showed their power by saying, look, your girlfriend, your mistress, Alice Perez, is a bad, is, is bad influence on you. And he was pretty senile, he was in bed. He was a, he was a very old man by this time. And so they, got, they told the king, I'm sorry, Alice Perez is being exiled, together with many of her advisors, she's out. And the king could do nothing about that. Parliament, again, exerting its power. Now, Henry and Elizabeth, the Tudors, were very careful about Parliament. They recognised that Parliament had established itself as an essential power in the land. So they were quite clever not to cross Parliament too much. They would do once or twice. And um, Mary, when Mary became queen, knocked off... Uh, 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 um, Lady Jane poor, Grey. Poor little Lady Jane Grey. Um, she and Philip of Spain wanted to make sure that, uh, that, that Philip would be king if she died. Parliament said, no, I'm sorry, but, but, but when, if, if you die early, Philip of Spain will not be king of England anymore. And so that, again, was Parliament saying no to the queen, a very powerful queen. Um, James I, the clock went back. <laughs> he said, what is all this? This Parliament's far too, exerting their power far too much. And he said very famously, he said... I am surprised my ancestors ever permitted such an institution to come into existence. And he was supported by people in Parliament, people like uh, the glorious <laughs> name of Julius Caesar, a wonderful chap. He said, uh, famously, Parliament's the deadliest enemy of democracy. This was a complete throwback to where we were with before King John. And uh, James dissolved Parliament, just said, hell with Parliament, good old Julius Caesar and I, no nonsense. Uh, so they had 19 of his 22 years uh, on the throne, uh, Parliament was, was no longer. He got away with it. His son, as we know, didn't. And he ran up against impressive parliamentarians like John Pym, great radical parliamentarian, who got his, his chaps together, and when Charles formed an army, the, the, uh, the parliamentarians did the same. Dreadful civil wars, we all know, ending with the king executed outside Banqueting House in, in uh, Whitehall, 1649. And then the man who succeeds, Oliver Cromwell. Now, the extraordinary thing about this bloke is that he had all this power, total power. The king was, the, the monarchy was finished and he failed to create a republic. It was an amazing moment in British history when, I'm sure many of you are Republicans here, <laughs> um, and maybe not, but... Uh, you know, this was the opportunity. And yet this man, he, was, he, was, he had a problem. His parliamentarians were a pretty scruffy lot. They weren't a very impressive intellectual crowd. And they didn't come up with much. He himself was a curious combination of dictator and democrat. He was clearly a bit of a democrat himself. He wanted to try and create a republic with more, many more people voting. A lot of his soldiers wanted more people voting. A lot of his soldiers wanted more people voting than he would, that he would accept. 
And he went to Parliament at one stage and said, look, what have you come up with? Have you come up with a good blueprint for a republic, for a real republican democracy? And they, they didn't, they hadn't. And so he rather angrily said, I rather, rather impressive bit of Cromwell, really. He said, you know, take away this bauble, this, this representation of democracy, this, 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 this scepter, um, uh, this mace in front of the speaker. And he said, uh, you know, you are no democracy. That was the end of poor old Cromwell, as we all know. And then uh, we had um, Charles II took over from Cromwell, restored. He was sensible. He realised his dad had come unstuck. And he recognised the political parties were beginning to gather. We had the Whigs and the Tories under Charles II beginning to exert themselves. And so he recognised that parliamentary democracy, parliamentary power, was with him to stay. And he was succeeded, or he, uh, we had James II, of course, being tossed out by good old William of, uh, of Orange, who came across. William III really became the king with the most, he, in many ways, I should have used him saying that he was one who made a great mark on British history, because he did. He wasn't a very charismatic fellow, but he did say, I recognise that Parliament has the power to make the decisions that matter. And so we then had the beginning of real constitutional monarchy, constitutional democracy, with the king providing this overhead, figurehead umbrella, and underneath Parliament, from William III onwards, having all the decisive power. Well, more or less all the decisive power. Uh, Anne vetoed one or two uh, pieces of legislation that came through, but she ended it in 1708. That's the last time there was a royal veto. Uh, George III tried to make his tutor, Lord Bute, uh, Prime Minister, <laughs> which was fine, a good chap, uh, but he wasn't terribly successful Prime Minister. He didn't last very long, as you can see. He came back a bit later, actually, to be fair to him. But um, this is absurd. Here is the king trying to appoint, say, look, I mean, I want Boris Johnson, my prime minister, whatever. Uh, and that, that wasn't acceptable. By that time, it was going not to be acceptable. William IV, Anne's referred to him, the, the sailor bill, um, he said, in this complete change of atmosphere, I, I give my view to my ministers, uh, and they, if they cannot accept it, I cannot help it. He recognised that ministers decided the way the king should make decisions, and as far as the king did make decisions. And uh, he, again, was the last king to sack a prime minister. Lord Melbourne was fired in 1834. That was the end of that prime minister because the king sacked him. But from then on, it never happened. And queen Victoria didn't like Gladstone very much. Uh, she loved to have sacked him. I think her diaries talk about how she doesn't like Gladstone very much. And... Um, she thought of sacking him, I'm sure, but never, never got round to it. It was, never, by that time, totally out of the question, impossible to do. A uh, great uh, constitutional historian, uh, Walt Badgett, said that the, the, the monarch had the right only to be consulted, to encourage, and to warn. And that's very much the picture still. That is the way it works. So in those private meetings that happen once a week, uh, the Queen, uh, and now, of course, Charles, can say what they like to the Prime Minister, but that's a private conversation. And here he is, well, it's all a private, remember? <laughs> She's <laughs> still Prime dear. Minister. Dear, oh dear, he said when she turned up. And uh, <laughs> so we know what he probably thought of her. But nevertheless, I mean, the we, we reckon the chances are, he, he made the very important point when he took over, when he, when he became king, sorry, we're running a bit long, um, that, that, um, that he would not go beyond his constitutional duty to recognise that he shouldn't be saying very much. His opinions should be kept yeah, below. Um, uh, uh, questions, do go ahead, last question. Sorry about that, too long. <laughs> Anybody got a question? Hi, sorry, uh, thanks very much. Uh, that was a really, really interesting talk. Um, I was just wondering, uh, in all your sort of uh, researching on, on the different monarchs, um, a lot of it seems to be sort of uh, quite sort of uh, similar to what people expect in terms of things like Prince John being bad, etc. Were there any sort of really stark surprises that you came across where you sort of came across people who seem better than you'd expected or can, worse. Can you hear? Right. I'm different. Okay, oh, I'm sorry. just going to... Any surprises about people expecting a king to be bad or good? Um, did we have any surprises? Yes, I think... Uh, can I, I, think, I, can sorry, I say something? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, George III, who I thought was a useless king who... I'm Canadian, so I can say this, who uh, lost, you know, America... Um, to the to, uh, lost America. It turned out, actually, when you read about him, he was a terror. First of all, he was in power for 60 years. He, um, 
was, did go mad, but he was a very nice man and he worked really hard and he and his wife were seen as model citizens. They were really popular. At one point, they used to go bathing. I think it's somewhere like Bognor Regis, I'm, I'm not quite sure. And um, at one point, a band followed him into the sea playing God Save the King, which was fast replacing <laughs> Rural Britannia at that point. It was, Rural Britannia was still the anthem. So, I mean, people loved the guy and it's just, he's had such a bad rap. Obviously true of George VI, um, unexpected. Uh, really no, 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 talking about we were surprised by the king or queen. Well, we were a bit surprised by George VI. Were you? Okay. I think so. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> um, no, I mean, what? I'll go to my separate room right now. No, I think, <laughs> no, I think the Duke of York at the time seemed to be a sort of minor brother. Edward VIII, a very attractive chap. I mean, full of, full of sort of the war charisma, whatever the word is. Um, although he obviously came unstuck, badly unstuck, and wasn't happy doing the job as we... No, no. But um, uh, George, his brother, who took over, because he had to be, un 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 reluctantly took over from Edward, became a hugely successful king. Partly because of the Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth. Exactly, Queen yeah. Elizabeth Bez and Bezalana. She was terrific. And uh, so he was, he was clearly surprised. Um, okay, I'm going to be rude here I think, yes, yes, come on. Let's no, no, more, more questions, because we, we did talk Thank a you bit very too much, long. Anybody else got a question? If there aren't any more, we'll go on with unsurprises. There's one there. There's one. Hi, thank you. Um, do you think that the loss of France under Henry VI would have happened under Henry V? Did his death save him, or was it kind of an inevitable loss? I kind of think Henry VI gets quite a bad rap for that, but he was only nine months old, you know, when, when he inherited it. So do you think Henry V would have lost France just like Henry VI did? Henry VI? Would, would Henry, Henry V have Henry lost v. it as well? Had he lived, would he have lost Henry. France as well? The chap who won the Battle of Agincourt. Would he have lost it had he lived? Would he have lost it? If he it? had lived longer, would he have, Fanny V, have lost France? I, I'm asking oh, I see. Yeah. I'm asking, it was, it was a subject of an, of an A-level paper. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I just wondered what you thought. <laughs> yes, I mean, it, it's a wonderful sort of counterfactual question. I mean, I, 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 I would have thought the odds were sort of slightly more and more against us in France. Um, but on the other hand, he was a terrific warrior, uh, and he was very popular in France. And there was a sort of problem with Burgundy, wasn't there? You probably more about this than I do, but, but, but I mean, Burgundy was sort of, you know, in, in the balance in France. It was terribly difficult for the French royal family. Um, uh, and, and so they, they half welcomed Henry V when he came, up, when he came across it, and tragically died so young. Um, having produced this little chap, Henry VI's son, who of course was absolutely hopeless and could in no way follow on with the success of his dad. So I suspect under Henry the, under the, under, under the, uh, the Henry VI and so on, I mean, Henry VI was king for a long time and his fight with the Yorkists is what dominated his rule rather than any attempt to take back France. Uh, so I think, I mean, I, I don't know whether you agree, but I would have thought that uh, Agincourt was a high watermark um, although even Agincourt was only the north chunk of France, it was way up the top. Aquitaine by this time was a distant memory. Uh, so yes, enough? I think one more minute, for, so one more question if there is one. Do you think we will still have a monarchy in 100 years' time? Do we still, will we still have a monarchy in 100 oh, yes. years' time? Yes, I think we definitely will. I mean, I think, I think if, <laughs> if, we, if you remember anything in 100 years' time, it's what a shambles it was when uh, we tried to get a new prime minister. Um, I, <laughs> I, I would have, I, I think so. I mean, so much depends on how they behave. Uh, so much depends on who succeeds Charles. And, and, and I think we're quite well placed. I mean, I think William looks to me like a, a you know, sort of ideal. I mean, looks like a, 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 probably a dream king. Now, he's going to be there. God, he's 40, is he? 35, 40? 40. Uh, so he's going to be there for 60 years, around 60 years. Um, then the little George, I mean, he'll bring him up well and so on and so forth. Um, <laughs> No, George, yes? Yeah, George, I'm sure he's yeah. fine. Yeah. Oh, that little, George, <laughs> little George is a card game, isn't it? That's right, sorry. Is that right? No, no. Um, so no Louis, Louis might be a problem, King. Who? Louis, the little one, could be a problem. Oh, you little chap. <laughs> yeah, yes, right, but he'll have to knock off George first. Anyway, um, so <laughs> anyway I mean, I, I would have thought the thing looks fairly okay. The great thing about it all now is that these guys really have very little serious political power. And, they, and they, as long as they understand that what we look to them for is the Union Jack and the figurehead and the sense of being British and, 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 the, and the sense of 
being above the turmoil of sort of Boris versus Rishi and all that rubbish. But another thing um, is that younger people aren't so keen on the monarchy, but it's surprising as you get older, you start realizing it's a wonderful system, the constitutional monarchy. Uh, you know, yes, and wonderful is obviously, yeah, I mean, fair enough. I, I, think, I think it, it does work. It works. And we, someone's waving time after. Okay. <laughs> so thank you very thank much. Thank you much. very much. Thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.